Before I begin my Dharma talk, I want to take a moment to introduce you to our teaching assistant, briefly introduce you to our teaching assistant for uh, the next two weeks, Nuli Wei. So Nuli Wei, thank you very much for joining us and to welcome Nuli Wei with us. The last talk I shared with you, I offered you this description kind of the, fr- of, of the freedom that, that arises from this path and this practice to kind of give a description of maybe what a, a heart that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion, what, what that might look like. And you might remember I shared with you that, that Zen phrase from Yun Men, that the heart of this practice is an appropriate response. And tonight what I'd like to do is, is offer another description. And, and the reason I'm doing this is I find that sometimes the descriptions that uh, we can play with or we hear can help shape this path and this practice that we're on. And it can help kind of uh, uh, point out some of the, the aspects of this path that come up on retreat. And remember, please remember, I was, I was thinking I should have said this before my first talk, but you know how memory is. When I share with you, I'm just sharing with you stories. And when it sounds like I'm not sharing stories with you, they're still stories. <laughs> they're just here to, to hopefully maybe inform the heart in, a, in one direction or another. And sometimes they'll land and sometimes they won't. And what I'd like to do is uh, begin with a poem or a part of a poem by Shizuwa uh, Miwosh, who really, I, I think, is, was one of the great poets of the 20th century, uh, uh, a Polish poet. Actually grew up in Lithuania, but identified as uh, a Polish poet. I actually remember seeing him uh, give a, a poetry reading in uh, Claremont, California. And it was so moving. And one of the reasons why it was so moving is the Polish community had uh, turned out for him and, and uh, their hearts just uh, filled with so much excitement and love to be able to hear him offer his poems in, in Polish. I mean, he was a national hero. He was on one of their stamps and he could feel that in the room. I sometimes think, I, I, I wish we had more national heroes that were poets in our country. So may, may it be so. Yeah, so uh, a powerful poet. And he has this poem, To Fall in Love. He says, to fall in love, does it occur suddenly or gradually? I would fall in love, he says, I would fall in love in all kinds of ways. I would fall in love with a botanical atlas or with an Oriole, or with a ferret, with a marten in a picture, or with the forest one sees to the right when riding a cart to Jezini. I'd fall in love with a poem by a little known poet, with human beings whose names still move me. 
And always the object of love was enveloped in erotic fantasy or was submitted, as in Stendhal, to a crystallization. And, and of the fairy tales about it, one invents. Yes, yes, I was often in love with something or someone. Yet falling in love is not the same as being able to love. That, that is something different. Have you noticed that the heart falls in love with all kinds of things? It's attracted to all kinds of things. And have you noticed how the mind creates those fairy tales? The fairy tales about those things we fall in love that we invent. Or being enveloped in erotic fantasy or entangled with grasping. And then he makes that distinction. And, and yet being able to love is something quite different than falling in love. Maybe that's really what all this retreat is about. It's just opening the door to be able to love. And not merely falling in love because that's something different, to be able to love. And for me, the power of that poem is that, to me, it's a poem that's truly about being able to love. And yet, did you know it? He said nothing about that. He said nothing about how do we get to this point of being able to love. He just talks about falling in love. There are no words about being able to love. And when I was reading that, it struck me, it felt like much of this path in early Buddhism. We talk so much about how the mind and heart gets entangled and how it falls in love in all kinds of ways. It might fall in hate or anger, but we love talking about that. I know I do. And we find this in, in early Buddhism. That's so much of what's talked about. But there's such a lack of detailed descriptions about freedom. Many descriptions of what it isn't, but not what it is. And there might be something really important about that. That we need to see really clearly falling in love and being able to love can come from that clear scene. As I said, maybe that's all freedom is, is just being able to love, allowing maybe these Brahma Viharas to move through the heart and not get entangled with grasping and aversion and delusion. In the Zen tradition, you, f you find this begin to emerge in, in China with Chan. Is sometimes the language that's used around freedom or awakening is intimacy. 
a kind of spiritual intimacy. And that resonates with me, sometimes also just with the flavor of the practice. We're just here to, to be intimate with the breath, with the sound or an ache in the body, to get close to that emotion like sadness or irritation. So close with it, intimate with it, not lost in it, not overwhelmed by it, to touch it, to be intimate. There's a book uh, by the uh, Zen scholar Peter Hershock called Liberating Intimacy. It's actually a great book. It's very nerdy, so I always caution people. <laughs> it's an ac- academic book, but I kind of like those nerdy things at times. <laughs> and what I appreciate he points out is, is he, he uh, makes the, the contention that, uh, that Zen is really, it's just about liberating intimacy. It's not about you getting liberated or me getting liberated. It's about Intimacy getting liberated. Because it's so confined and entangled with all kinds of reactivity in the heart and mind. And again, maybe that's what we're doing here. Maybe, maybe this isn't about your life getting any better or my life getting any better. But through our service here, intimacy gets liberated. There's more space for intimacy to happen in this world. I mean, I think it's fine that you're doing this to improve your life. I'm just saying (laughs) there might be something bigger going on. You know, I have so many ideas about what's going on in practice, and I love to have some, some idea that doesn't fit into my mind, like liberating intimacy. It keeps the mystery involved in what this is all about. But that's the trick, right? Intimacy can get so confined that that impulse for closeness, whether it be sexual or not, gets so entangled in grasping an aversion and there gives the rise to suffering. And tonight, that's what I really want to share with you, some reflections about navigating this impulse for closeness, whether it be of a sexual nature or not, with this vision, this vision to actually liberate intimacy from how it gets confined in these hearts and minds. And I think it's important to talk about, in particular, sexual energy, because it arises on retreat. Maybe you've noticed that. (laughs) And it's often not fully acknowledged. Remember, this happened to me on retreat in, in Burma, in Myanmar. And it was around, I was practicing with this, uh, this Burmese teacher, Saida Upandita, who I would describe as not a warm and fuzzy kind of teacher. <laughs> it's kind of stern in a way. And I, I was having my practice discussions, my practice meetings with him. So I just want you to imagine this. You know, already, right, going to practice meetings can be just like, boy, can it make the mind crazy? Have you noticed that? <laughs> It's like the one thing in retreat is just like, oh my God, can I just like stop thinking about the 15 minutes that's going to happen in two days? (laughs) Maybe that's just me. (laughs) They're crazy making. So here it is. It's practice meetings with Saida Upandita. Already a challenge there. 
and then with Saito Upandita, so this, I, th- I always feel like when I'm going into having a practice meeting with them, this, um, there was such an emphasis he put on continual mindfulness, so being very mindful as I walked in. But the problem was, is I had this huge Vipassana romance, this huge infatuation with the interpreter who was right there in the room <laughs> as I was trying to do a practice meeting with Saito Upandita. <laughs> So here I am in this room with my heart racing, not only because of Saida Upandita, because of the interpreter right there. <laughs> right? I already had plans for the rest of our life with the interpreter. <laughs> it was tough. Crazy making. And I remember one day the interpreter was not there. This, this is how crazy the mind gets. And of course, it's Saida Upandita who's held in high esteem and Myanmar. And I thought, he's read my mind and now the interpreter is gone. Oh my God. Now everybody knows, like, in the whole meditation center, the, the word is out. Maybe your mind isn't as crazy as mine. I hope not, but that's what I was sitting with. And I really want to point out what made it so crazy-making was I wasn't fully acknowledging that experience. And I wasn't opening to it as a part of my path and my practice. It was something that I was trying to brace against to get through practice rather than, oh, this too, this too is just another arising and passing away. This too is part of the human experience. This is the turn that I needed, that helped so much of, oh, this too is my practice. And as I said, important, because this can happen for yogis, right? That sexual energy can be really intense at times on retreat. And for others, if it's not that, it might be just the intensity of the impulse for some kind of intimate connection with another, you know, even if it doesn't involve the sexual impulse. It can get so strong. And I also want to acknowledge there can be a huge range of how strong this is. For some people it can be super intense, some people sort of kind of, and some people not at all. And to, to really honor that there's a full range in terms of how this, this impulse to connect, you know, intimately, whether it be sexual or not, courses through our hearts and our bodies. And also, I think it's important that we are here not to create yet another place where there's no acknowledgement of being a sexual being. This is important and can happen, you know, so, so readily. (laughs) It reminds me when I was growing up, I I think I told you I grew up in a Catholic family and um, must've been in my early teens. And there was one book on sex in our house. And I remember seeing it in the books. I think it was the, the official Irish guide to sex. That was in there. I know, you can always. And I remember, you know, that night where your parents go out, a young kid so excited, and I grabbed the book and opened the book so excited, and it's filled with blank pages, you know. <laughs> That's what it's like. 
was a drag. <laughs> Especially as a young teen. But the perfect book, right? That's, that's what happens as we... It's these extremes that happen in society. Either it's denied or deeply obsessed about. And if you notice these extremes all around us, the hyper-sexualization of others or the denial of sexuality. And to remember, our mind, as Krishnamurti says, our mind is society. It's, it's been shaped by by these unskillful tendencies that are in family and society. It's a tricky realm. And I also want to acknowledge how this impulse to connect and how this sexual energy manifests in our experience can be really quite so unique. Just in this, in this room here, you know, the, all the factors that come together for each and every one of us. You know, biological factors mixing with, you know, around gender and sexual orientation. It mixes with our age and stage in life. Sometimes a lot of sexual energy, sometimes none. Right? And again, these messages from family and society. You know, a whole a variety of experiences, right? Around sex and sexuality, whether it be sexual activity or sexuality with ourselves or with others. And it is intense, right? Because it can be so connected with experiences of closeness, connection and love and kindness, but also with sometimes a lot of pain and a lot of confusion and a lot of hurt. It's actually a charged realm. It's a tricky, tough realm. So I just want to acknowledge all of that that comes with this realm. And at the same time, here we find ourselves together in this community. And this special community, this special container of retreat where we're here, we're here to simplify in order to clarify. And there's something beautiful and powerful about this simplicity that we're all in together here. It's the, as they say, it's the, we're engaged in the brahmacharya life. It's a, brahmacharya is a word that goes back to, you know, to the Vedas, it, it predates the Buddha. And it, it refers to a few things. In some contexts, it refers to celibacy. One living the brahmacharya life is one who's living the celibate life. But also, often in the, the Pali Suttas, that word brahmachari is, is a term in more general usage that it refers to the holy life, to the spiritual life. And specifically, kind of etymologically, it, it means conduct, charya, it's the conduct or the way of being that leads to Brahma. Or in the context of Buddhism, the, the conduct that leads to freedom. All right, so we're, here we are living in this world of celibacy. Some of you temporarily, maybe 
others of you have a longer commitment to such a lifestyle. And I find what's so powerful about it is that when we commit to that, there's this this possibility of creating a different relationship to sexual energy or a different relationship even to that impulse to connect with others rather than being a slave to that or at the whim of it. Someone asked the, the 16th Karmapa why he had chosen celibacy because actually many lamas in his tradition uh, married. And he said, I am celibate for the same reason you are not. I'm celibate for the same reason you are not. Or in other words, just as you are not celibate or engage in in sex to connect and be intimate with others, I am celibate in order to connect and to be intimate with others. There's something about celibacy that can, that can open up this doorway for a deeper sense of really what intimacy is about. Liberates intimacy. As Ajahn Suchito says, he, he talks about how brahmacharya, this, this quality of brahmacharya leads to the blossoming of the brahma-viharas, these movements of the heart that are so beautiful and profound. A little bit more on this this framework of spiritual intimacy and and possibly what the Karmapa is pointing to around this, of a deeper sense of intimacy. Actually, and, and maybe a, a good way of getting a sense of what he's pointing to is maybe it might be easier to explain this in terms of what he was not pointing to. And so I want to share a story about this. At uh, the monastery at, uh, I think it was Amarvati in, in England, there was, um, Ajahn Samedo was the abbot and one of the nuns there was going to visit her father and I think she'd been on a few visits there and it was tough for her going to visit her father because her father was just so pissed off so angry that she had gotten ordained and when she would go home he would demand that she wear a hat because he didn't want to see her shaved head and she was speaking with Ajahn Sumedho about the challenge with her father around this And he gave her one instruction. He said, don't create him. Don't create him, or or a little bit more of what he was getting at. Don't create your father out of grasping aversion and delusion. Because this is what we're doing time and time again, aren't we? we, We're creating other people out of our grasping or aversion or delusion. Or for the context of this talk, we create people, right? And especially in this world of connection and sexual intimacy, these people that's really just a fantasy, it's simply based on our craving. 
and a whole person appears that really has nothing to do with that person. They're just a creation of the mind. I mean, have you noticed this on retreat? You see somebody. Right? Maybe you've spoken a few words to them, maybe not even that. And like for me, you're, you're ready to have that long conversation with them right after retreat. <laughs> They're the person for me. I know it. And there it is, that intensity of that attraction. You don't even know that person. But it happens the opposite way too. Somebody does some kind of behavior and we feel like we know them so well and what a horrible person they are. <laughs> it's crazy. And have you noticed the, the, the creation of this unrealistic world, how, how enticing it is and how convincing it can be? But I think it's important to remember, especially around these, these stories of attraction, how unrealistic they are. Have you noticed how crazily unrealistic they are? For example, when you have that fantasy of another person, whether it be here or someone outside that has that, that, that appealing fantasy of connection. Do you, ever, do you ever fantasize in the fantasy? Do you ever have this fantasy of fighting around money? <laughs> Does the fantasy include the disjointed conversation that leaves you feeling abandoned and rejected? <laughs> But that's part of relationship, isn't it? <laughs> or even with sexual fantasy, do you ever fantasize about bad breath or something like that? <laughs> it never happens. <laughs> so unrealistic. Those things happen, don't they? <laughs> and this is the mind. This is the mind being fixated on falling in love rather than being able to love. Like, do you hear the confinement, the oppression that happens to intimacy when we're so wrapped up in falling in love? We imprison intimacy. We're carrying on a tradition, an inheritance of confining what it means to connect. We're actually not interested in that other person. It's just, they're the the vehicle for our projections, a kind of caricature. The, the eyes are colored by this infatuation that's in the mind. The Pali word around this, raga, usually translated as lust. Raga literally means to color, like you would like to dye a cloth. So here it is, lust, coloring the eyes in this particular way so that all you see is your, your creation. I mean, if it's so well with that, that quote that Andrea gave us from Anais Nen, we do not see things as they are, we see them as we are. This is the nature of falling in love. This is the nature of raga. 
And the cool thing about retreat is to see this in the silence and the simplicity here gives the opportunity to see how the mind fabricates. And from its fabrication, these sankharas, there is a coloring of perception and a creation of our figment of our imagination of this other person. And you might notice this, this coloring, these quote-unquote sankharas, sometimes they run deep because of sometimes the notions that we have about others or what it means to be able to love because we've been so seduced by falling in love. And they can run deep. And I want to share with you a description of the depth of this that, uh, that feels like can maybe we're taught or we feel it. It's an image that, that actually comes from a, a platonic dialogue called the Symposium. And the, the so, Symposium is, it's a, it's, it's, you could say this story, it's about this story of these guys getting together to talk about love. They're drinking, talking about love. You know, and there's these subplots, you know, there's love is in the air. Alcibiades, who's this great general from, um, I think the Peloponnesian Wars is there with Socrates. And he finds himself over the evening just falling deeply and madly, erotically in love with Socrates, who is known about all around Greece to be, at least in appearance, a very ugly man. And here, Alcibiades' heart is opening in this different way. So they're, they're sharing their ideas about love, and, and they get to Aristophanes, who is um, you know, a real character. He wrote... Uh, Comedies, and to remember, comedies uh, often at that time was the, the 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 most tragic view of what it is to be a human being. And Aristophanes gives this vision of uh, the way our lives are: is that that once upon a time, and he's kind of making a parody of I think a, a lot of Greek stories. We were all cartwheels, where there was two of us pasted together. It was either two men pasted together rolling around, or two women pasted together, rolling around, or a man and a woman pasted together, rolling around. These three different kinds of cartwheels. I think if Aristophanes was sharing this now, he would have even more diversity of that, of trans folks mixed in there with these kinds of cartwheels. And then as with all good Greek stories, they pissed the gods off in some kind of way. They went up too high and Zeus was upset, but he didn't want, Zeus didn't want to destroy them all the way because Zeus loved their devotion and their, their libations that, he, that they would offer. So he, uh, he divided all of them apart. And as a result of that, everybody would be going around all their lives looking for the other half of them so they could feel complete again. Humorous, but tragic to look for someone else to complete us. It'd be such a, such a thing that, that happens. Sometimes it's just an urge to take away those feelings of incompleteness and unworthiness. Maybe if I find that other person. Have you ever gotten into a relationship with that strong impulse to do that? Ouch. Wow, that's been painful for me and the other person. 
And really those feelings of incompleteness and unworthiness, it's just a conglomeration of sensations, thoughts, and feelings that arise and pass away. And yet they can hook us into this tragic, maybe comic vision that Aristophanes gives, which I think is so tragic. Because then we're just, again, creating that other person, this sankara that shapes perception, that shapes how we see others. And I want to point out that how important it is to see some of the details of how this works in our meditation. It really comes down to, to really ways of navigating these impulses and to see how they unfold on retreat. And I want to point out how important it is to do this for the world that we live in. Because you might notice, really the dynamic is, let's say if it's just around the visual field, sometimes what has happened is that the eye gets pulled toward a certain person maybe that you find attractive. And just in that dynamic of the eye getting pulled in a certain direction to look at someone or wanting to look at someone, you know what it also does? It renders a whole bunch of other people invisible. And just from that, we get a creation of society that can have so many dimensions of oppression. There are the people that are visible in Horacin that so often make it in ways in society. And then there's the ones who are invisible that don't. This happens if the mind gets conditioned around societally kind of attractive people. Of course, there's all dimensions and variations about how our eyes work in regard to how we're situated. But it does have huge ramifications. You know, attractive people by conventional or societal standards, they tend to have better health, better dating experiences, earn more money, obtain higher career positions, chosen for jobs more often, are promoted more often, receive better job evaluations, and are chosen as business partners more often than unattractive people. And it begins with the eye seeing and being pulled in a certain way and not being mindful of that. so interesting to see how attention gets pulled and the ramifications of that. So I hope you're hearing how powerful it is to start to investigate this. This is a contribution to the society that we live in. It really does liberate and intimacy for all to begin to undermine these habitual conditionings that we've been given by society and by family. We're just trying to change this just a bit. As James Baldwin said, the great African-American writer, if you alter it even by a millimeter, the way people look at reality, then you can change it. 
Remember, he was writing so much about, you know, systems of oppression and changing those dynamics in society. That's what we're doing. We're just altering just a little bit what's going on moment after moment, what's happening on this retreat, just by infusing it with mindfulness, just to notice this. That's all. Just to notice how the mind does this. The play of perception, who gets seen and who is rendered invisible. It, it happens around all kinds of things, around the perception, the perceived age of another, the perceived gender, the perceived skin color, the, the perceived kind of height, the ability of that body. Or maybe in terms of sound, which we don't have as much sometimes around accent. And that's why on retreat, it's so helpful to, at least in this one sense, it's talked about in the early discourses a little bit differently, to guard the senses, to guard the eyes. Because when I have the, the, the intention not to be looking at others so directly, I can be more mindful of the impulse to look. It's also just a way of allowing ourselves to be together and also be alone. But it's so fascinating to see where the eyes want to go, to get a sense of that. Oh, interesting, there's that wanting to look. Oh, it arises and it passes away. That's all it is. And sometimes the stories that can come so, so immediately around the things we see. And of course, part of especially sexual energy is also navigating the images that come up, that get the mind and the heart get bombarded by. So how to navigate this? So in terms of the external, I think it is that simple of, of just noticing that impulse to look and noticing the feelings that are there, the wanting, the not wanting, the stories around it, the feelings, and seeing how it's constructed, this impulse. I also want to take some time to uh, share about how to navigate kind of strong sexual energy or that, that, that strong wanting to connect with others. And I think the first thing, just as in my story, which I think is so important, is just the acknowledgement. Oh, this, this too is part of the human experience. Oh, that strong feeling of wanting to connect. That strong feeling of sexual desire without judgment, just, oh, this is what's happening right now. And then, just as the, what I shared with you, especially around anger, directing, seeing if you can contact the direct experience of it, which means, can you separate the feeling of wanting from the object or the image? So it's stepping out of, especially, you know, the stories or the images that's coming with it getting a sense of how does the body feel? 
I think so often around sexual energy, there can be this assumption that all the sensation, all the experience will be only in the genital area. That, that whole experience can be throughout the body, sometimes in the spine or in the viscera, feels a certain way. Sometimes that experience has pleasant sensations with it, but often, most often, it can feel very agitating and very unpleasant to actually contact the bodily experience of it. It's a whole range of feeling tone from pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Sometimes there's an ache or a gnawing feeling, an agitation. To be with that, to touch into it. You don't need to do anything, it's rather being with. And yes, it's going to be super messy like the rest of meditation. Sometimes you're with it, sometimes you're drowning in it. Sometimes you're being with it. Sometimes you're lost in it. It's the intention to see if there can be a quality of presence with it. Sometimes there are flavors of emotion like loneliness or sadness or excitement or boredom mixed into it. But I think most importantly, it's to notice the wanting mind, the wanting that's involved in that and to touch, to taste the suffering of it. It actually doesn't feel good, is what I noticed. That wanting, that grasping, and how disruptive it really can be for the heart and mind. You know, sometimes there's been such an over-glorification of these feelings that we can not be willing to touch the ouch in it. Really important. So yeah, a friend of mine, a fellow practitioner, she, um, she told me an interesting story. She had, um, she had many years where really she didn't really have, uh, she shared with me really no sexual energy kind of moving through her body or her life. And then she had gone on this retreat and um, so many years of kind of this kind of settledness in that realm. And she went on this retreat uh, kind of more of a, not, not a, a meditation retreat, a, a more of a workshop. And there was someone there that just was like, just stirred up the sexual energy in her body. Just like she just felt this deep, deep attraction and so stirred up around this person. And she came back from it and she was like, I, I just can't believe how much this stirred up my entire being. And she said, I am so glad that isn't happening in my life anymore. She's just like, wow, I can't believe how much suffering I went through most of my life following that. And she said, just the savoring of the peace that was in her life without those ups and downs. Really actually appreciating the celibate life too. And I'm not saying this to say that there's something bad about sexual energy but just to see that when it gets entangled in wanting, there is a kind of suffering that's there. That's all, just to, to touch that. There's a kind of plug for the celibate life too, that there's, there is a, a place for that. And I, and I want to be clear when I say that, I'm not trying to, you know, I don't live a celibate life. I, I have a wedding ring on, I'm married. But it's it's something that we don't talk about a lot. like. 
It's like I've never, you know, like I've never been to a grocery store and seen on the, the glossy, the front of the glossy magazine, you know, 10 ways to make your celibate life better. Have you ever seen that? No. <laughs> it's usually what's not on those magazines. So just to kind of give a, a broader range of, of really of inclusivity of different ways of being in the world. Maybe I'm going to the wrong grocery store, I don't know. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to give a bad rap to sexual energy. It's really this, this impulse to allow that, that impulse for intimacy to be liberated from, from grasping and aversion and delusion. And really what's so important to notice about these pulls, these wantings, is this simple fact that they arise and they pass away. They arise and they pass away. And just seeing that can be so liberating. Because the hook, what I've noticed for the hook is, is that when it arises, it's, it's, this, it's, the, it's the voice that says that this impulse needs to be acted upon or completed in order to f- for you to feel okay or to have a sense of relief. So it's really powerful to see that, oh, it's just an arising and a passing away. I don't have to follow that all the time. And when I don't have to follow it all the time, it opens up the possibility to actually see the person that's in front of me. That I'm not only colored, that the mind isn't colored by raga. It can see, it can, it can allow intimacy to happen. And then, uh, lastly, the, the practice of loving kindness, especially in the in-between times. This is the, the arena where I find this practice so powerful. You can see that the practice of the Brahma Viharas in some ways is it's about shaping perception. A lot of this practice is about shaping perception. For example, we're shaping perception so that it, it really sees arising and passing away, so that it sees impermanence. The Buddha talks about anicca sanya, the perception of impermanence. So in the early discourses, he doesn't talk about it being a lakana, a, a characteristic of experience. He talks about it as a perception. The perception of unreliability or unsatisfactoriness. The perception of not-self. Cultivating these perceptions. And with the Brahma Viharas, cultivating the perception of kindness. And what I love about the in-between times on retreat is it is a good time for keeping the mindfulness going, but also sometimes it's really great just to change the practice to loving kindness, to be, to be radiating loving kindness, maybe like the way we did the last time we did uh, the metta practice, just towards others around you. And to see how it shapes perception differently. It's so beautiful to actually see others when, when, when I have those glasses on to be around others, taking in their goodness. We get to create a whole different field that we're in together when we allow that perception to move through the heart and mind. Because that, that's liberating intimacy.
And I think it's through that perception that we can, we can behold, we can behold others in such a, a beautiful light. It reminds me of the words of Juliet towards Romeo. where she has this wish. He says, come gentle night, come loving black brown night, give me my Romeo. And when I shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars and he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. Maybe the only problem with that is it's just limited to one person. What would it be with all people to take them out, to cut them out in little stars so that they will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. So may our practice on this retreat lead to the liberation of intimacy. Thank you. Let's just uh, sit for a moment. And once again, we'll have chanting at uh, nine o'clock tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.